Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we are getting ready for the big cook this weekend, right? A lot of us are making that grocery list. We are checking it twice these days, checking the prices, that is. A new survey suggests that 55% of Canadians between the ages of 20 and 40 are planning to save some money by cutting back on holiday grocery spending or maybe hosting a kind of a potluck type of gathering instead. And for many people, though, it will still mean a turkey, or if you're at John Strait's house, it will be a turkey and a ham, but we thought let's find out how to make sure we're, we're doing things the best way possible. Like maybe you've got a turkey secret and I would love to hear your turkey secret. Send it to me, simi at cknw.com or you can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. But we want to get the lowdown from the expert. So Shahir Masood joins us now, chef ambassador for Butterball and author of Eat Habibi Eat. Shahir, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. How you doing, Simi? I am good, thank you. You must love turkey. I do. But I, I, I was also saying yesterday that this is my favorite holiday because it's the only, um, you know, food-centric holiday. It's all about the food, and I'm into it. I'm into this, too. Okay, so let's start <laughs> with the type of, like, what do you look for in a turkey when you go to the store? Yeah, so good question. So the number one thing I tell people is, you know, which turkey to buy a good rule of thumb is one and a half pounds per guest, which sounds like a lot, but you want to have enough for leftovers. And also that weight includes the bones and everything that you can turn into a soup and a stock after the fact. And so, you know, there's been a theme all morning about food prices and how to really yes. kind of stretch your dollar as far as you can. All of that stuff is great. When you roast a whole turkey, you're left with these amazing bones and some of the wings and all that great stuff. Turn it into a stock, turn it into a soup, Try, kind of stretch that dollar as far as you can. But that one and a half pounds per guest is the magic number to help you to do that. Okay, I want to get to that point too because I always do that. That's always, and then yeah. I, t- I tend to also I make the stock and then I freeze it because it's great for ga- gravy the next time you make yeah. a turkey too. So we'll get to that part in a moment. But first, what do you think is the biggest mistake people make when it comes to cooking a turkey? Uh, well, you know what? There's a lot. <laughs> so oh. There's, uh, there's actually okay. quite a bit. The first one, and I'll tell you the first one is the main one, is temperature. And cooking anything is all about time and temperature. But especially with turkey, some people start it at like a 450-degree oven to really get it brown, and then they knock it down, or vice versa. And the truth is, 325 is your magic number the whole way through from start to finish. And a lot of people are confused by that because they say, oh, that sounds a little low, doesn't it? But keep in mind, your turkey is cooking for hours. So it's a long, slow, even cook. And at 325, you're going to get perfect color all around your turkey, even cooking, you know, into into out. So that's your number. You don't have to crank the temperature or adjust the temperature. That's all you got to do. Elevate your turkey. So use a roasting rack. And if you don't have a roasting rack, a little tin foil ring, you know, you can make a little ring out of tin foil. 
and elevate your turkey so the oven air is circulating all the way around it. That's another big one as well. But also, and this is the most controversial one, so I hope everyone is sitting. No basting. No basting. What? And I, I know. I know. And allow me to explain. Because my mom basted. Probably yours did. Grandmas yeah. are out there basting. No basting. And I'll tell you why. The skin of a turkey is like a raincoat. So if you're taking liquid and you're just kind of, you know, spooning it on, it's just really kind of cascading down. And this is just something that grandmas and moms, again, mine included, used to do. But all you're doing by opening the oven every half hour to baste is you're losing your temperature. That's all you're doing. And spooning liquid on that's just kind of swimming off. The key to a moist and juicy turkey is not to overcook it. So have a meat thermometer, 165 internal temp. That's your magic temp. Just don't overcook it. And another key to having a moist and juicy turkey is brining it. And, you know, a couple of years ago, it was a real hot trend to brine your turkey. And all these people were putting giant, you know, bathtubs of turkey in their fridge. You don't have to do that with a butterball turkey. Yeah, it's a big, it was a, it was a lifestyle so commitment true. for a lot really of people. It really was. It really was. And you don't have to do that. So every, you know, a lot of people don't know, every butterball turkey is brined. So it's already brined for you, meaning it's moist, it's juicy, it's seasoned. All you got to do is roast it. Don't overcook it. It'll be perfect. Well, first of all, great sales pitch. Second, I want to <laughs> go back to the turkey temperature thing that you said, yes. because I had just, you know, half an hour ago, I had been musing out loud about trying the my roast chicken method on my turkey. And that's the Thomas yep. Keller method, which is the, yes. he does the roast chicken at 450, right? Yes, and then does. just for like an hour and boom, done. So you don't think yep. that would work for a turkey? No, and I'll tell you why. And actually, I roast my chicken that exact same way. So I love it for a chicken. But here's why it doesn't work for a turkey. Think about the ratios. Think about a turkey being that much larger than a chicken. So if you did that with a turkey, by the time it's golden brown and perfect on the outside, you're still kind of not cooked on the inside of that big, big, big turkey. Whereas a chicken, you know, you can get a chicken for a pound and a half. A turkey, we're talking a pound and a half per guest. So it's like, you know... It's all about ratio and size. So if you're going to cook a chicken for an hour, that's great. But oftentimes, you know, you're cooking our turkeys from frozen for five or six hours. So it's a lower, slower, more even process. Okay. I'm so glad I talked to you because I did not want to waste my turkey trying that out. Uh, Also, important question, stuff or don't stuff? I don't stuff. I personally don't stuff because I like crispy bits. That's just me. But you can buy turkeys pre-stuffed, cooked from frozen, thawed, all of those different things. I'm more of a stuffing on the side guy, and I know some purists would call that, quote-unquote, dressing. Hey, (laughs) it's stuffing, whether it's going in or out. For me, it's (laughs) stuffing, okay? But I'm an unstuffed guy because I like the crispy bits. But I do understand why people actually like to stuff it because it does also infuse your turkey with the flavors of stage. I just had that argument with somebody yesterday about the stuffing versus calling it stuffing versus dressing, which is why I'm laughing. Well, that's dressing. I know. I call it dressing, but they're like, no, it's stuffing regardless. (laughs) Okay. So we'll talk about the stuffing here in a moment then. So I don't stuff because I find that my turkey is done faster if I don't. Right. And I find it's just more questionable. Uh, And then your turkey dries out, I feel like, if you're cooking it for too long because you're worried about the stuffing. So this is a great, great point. If you're stuffing turkey all the way inside your turkey, that means the the most inner part of your stuffing has to reach a temperature of 165 to be food safe. It's touched now raw turkey. So you're right. You really have to make sure that right down to the center of that stuffing is cooked to 165. Whereas if you separate the stuffing, you get those crispy bits, you get the golden brown, all that good stuff. Mm. 
and you can kind of navigate it differently and, and really worry about the temperature of your turkey hitting 165 and just your turkey. But if you, you know, if you didn't talk to me today, pretend you never talked to me today and you started your turkey at 450, which would be a drastic mistake. But let's pretend. Thank you. Yes. If you find that it's getting too golden brown and you're like, whoa, 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 this is getting really dark brown and I still have, you know, three more hours of cooking, you can tent it with foil. And that'll allow it to keep cooking without getting extra color on the skin. So that's a little heads up as well. Okay, so you're saying don't put foil on it in the beginning, put foil on it later. I would say only put foil on it for two reasons. One, if you find that it's getting, you know, golden brown too quick, which can happen, and you still have an hour, two hours, three hours of cooking, tent it with foil so that it stops getting color but continues to cook. Another reason to tent it with foil, and here's where a little bit of math comes in. 165 is the perfect temperature for your breast, for your white meat. Dark meat actually is a little bit better, a little past 165, 170, 175, even 180. There's some tendons and connective tissues in the dark meat where the legs are. And so people ask me, well, how do I do that? How do I get the dark meat a little bit higher than the white meat? For the last half hour or so of cooking, you can tent your breast, the white meat, with some foil. That'll slow it down. And the dark meat will continue cooking at a bit of an accelerated pace. And that's exactly how you get 165 in the white, 175 to 180 in the dark. That's hmm. pro-level moves, though. This is pro-level Pro-level moves. Look yeah. at you throwing it down. Those uh, are the pro-level moves now. <laughs> what about, what? wait for it, what about butter under the skin? So many people do this. So many people do this. So I'm about to, uh, I'm, I'm about to spell a myth here. The name Butterball, butter has never been involved in the recipe ever. I don't know who came up with this idea, who came up with this name. I know. It really, again, the magic is always in the brine, the fact that they're all pre-brined. So I don't know where the butter came in. Um, Butter under the skin, again, this is now coming into a chicken versus turkey debate. I don't mind it for a chicken. I like it for a chicken. But this is a much shorter cook. With a turkey four, five, six hours, by the time you're done, you do run the risk of burning that butter or having basically a brown butter turkey, which isn't the worst thing, I suppose, but I would be mindful. But you're saying it doesn't actually, does it impart anything to the turkey? Does it make it juicier? Like For me, again, the, the trick to the juicy turkey isn't necessarily butter under the skin. It's about getting that internal temperature correct. If, I mean, look, if you overcook it, you're now running away from juicy land, so you, you can't overcook it. But also, it's all about brining. So having a brine bird and keeping your temperature correct, and you'll have a moist, juicy bird. Okay, a lot of people don't know a turkey can be juicy, Shahir. I know. Listen, I did another radio interview the other day, and the host said, but my wife likes it dry. I said, listen, I can't help you. I mean, like... (laughs) You're like, you're on your own. You're on your you're own. You're on your There's own, I, can do I, about that. I understand that's the way you remember it from grandma, but it can be moist. It can be juicy. You know, there's a lot of tips on butterball.ca where you have a turkey calculator and you punch in the weight of your bird. How long do I roast it for? We try and make it as easy as, as possible so that you won't screw it up. But if you don't overcook it, if you keep it at 325, don't open your oven door, you know, forget about grandma basting. You're going to be okay. We are talking turkey this morning with Shahir Masood, who's a chef ambassador for Butterball, author of Eat Habibi Eat. I kept him around because I have just a couple more questions about turkey stock, okay? Uh, They're very important questions. Okay, they are very important questions because that's a big part of the meal. I tend to serve a Thanksgiving lunch instead of a dinner because that leaves me the evening to clear everything up, rest, and then get to work on my turkey stock. 
Okay. Smart. So I put the bones and everything, the carcass, back in the oven to roast it for a mm-hmm. little bit longer before I start my stock. Is that the right thing to do? 100%. And when making any stock, what you can do, Simi, also is kind of break up the bones into smaller pieces. So you're not roasting the whole, you know, ah, yes. massive carcass. So, for example, in, in restaurant life, if we're making a beef stock or veal stock, we kind of break up the bones into smaller pieces. You can even coat it in a little bit of oil so it gets real deep golden color. And roast your bones at a high temperature, 400, 425, even 450. I know you've been waiting to roast something at 450. Save it for your bones. <laughs> Save it for the bones, okay? Yes. So you want that golden brown color with all the bones. I would chop it up into smaller pieces. But here's another hot tip for everybody. Again, the theme being we're trying to really stretch our dollar as far as we can. All those vegetable scraps that you have preparing your meal, the onion scraps and the carrot peels and all that stuff, save them. Because you're going to coat that in oil and add it to the tray as you roast your vegetables and your and your bones, like all of it together. the stuff that I would put in the compost you're talking about? Like Correct. That's, okay. Absolutely. All, look, tons of flavor in the onion peels and vegetable and, and, and carrot peels and all of that stuff. And that's great for stock. Even throughout the year, I'll have a kind of resealable plastic bag in my freezer with veggie scraps. And when the bag gets big enough, I'll coat it in oil throw it on a tray, roast it super high. Another ingredient you can add is some tomato paste as well to really give it some color and depth to your stock. And you're going to get great, 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 great flavor. After you roast those scraps and the bones and the tomato paste, you kind of scrape everything into a pot, cover with water, bring up to a gentle boil, and then let it simmer. Now with the turkey stock, minimum two hours. But the longer you go, the better. If you can go four, six, would be lovely. And then you have some real great stock. What you can do with the stock after that point, obviously you strain it out. Sometimes I like to reduce it because I want to freeze my stock, right? And if you're going to freeze your stock, you can reduce it so it's a more concentrated stock, almost like your, dare I say it, the more you reduce it, it's almost like your homemade bouillon kind of idea because it's a real concentrated stock. And what I'll do at that point is, as I reduce it into a real, real concentrated stock, I'll freeze it into ice cube trays so that when I want it to finish a sauce, for example, I can just use one, two, three ice cubes, and then boom, I'm swirling it into some butter for a sauce or something like that. Okay. I so like that's this. just a great way to save space as well. I like this. Great ideas. I'm going to incorporate some of these this weekend. Shahir, I can't thank you enough for joining us this morning. Hey, my pleasure. Happy Thanksgiving to you and everyone out there. And to you as well. Happy Thanksgiving. That's Shahir Masood, Chef Ambassador for Butterball and author of Eat Habibi Eat with some great, great tips for us this Thanksgiving. I also asked you, what are your tips and tricks for making that turkey dinner or your holiday meal? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. Uh, let's see. Someone texted me here. They signed themselves a chef in English Bay. I appreciate that. And said the absolute way to go with turkey and chicken is to brine ahead of time. The brine consists of mainly water, sugar, and salt. Herbs can be added too. Soaking in the brine should be 24 hours. I promise that you will have the most succulent turkey you have ever had. This is what people tell me, but unfortunately, I happen to be married to someone who doesn't like it. Doesn't like brined poultry doesn't like the way it like makes it too salty, whatever it is, just doesn't like the texture of it. So I can't do it. That's the frustration. So I have to find other ways to do it. But I get it. People love the brining. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. 
and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Let's hear what your tips and tricks are for turkey. This is Mornings with Simi. And for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, first off, I just want to ask you, we're expecting today some legislation kind of dealing more about where you can't have open drug use. Yeah, the government has conceded something they really weren't interested in last spring, which is there's a little too much open drug use in public spaces in BC. When mayors and councillors started complaining about that early this year, uh, the New Democrats really just ignored it, uh, downplayed it, uh, said, give the experiment a chance. Uh, You're going to stigmatize open drug use. Uh, They've now, over the summer, went, well, you know, the mayors and councillors have a point. That tells you it wasn't just the mayors and councillors. It was the government's own reading of the news media coverage and the opinion polls that indicated they better do something. So they are going to do something. Um, they won't say that they've decided that perhaps open drug use does need a little bit of stigmatizing, but that's going to be the effect of the legislation. It will uh, list off. We don't know all the places, but it will regulate ban open drug use in some public spaces. And we'll get a full list, I think. And that will also open the way for the police to enforce the law because the police have been going, we're not, we're not doing this anymore. Um, I understand that advocates uh, for users are saying this is bad. It will, as they say, stigmatize and demonize users. But the public patience with this had run right out. And you've got a government that's looking at an election next year that's attuned to that and is going to step in and restrict it. Okay, so that's coming up today. I'm sure we'll have more to talk about. But I wanted to ask you if there was any reaction in Victoria to the election in Manitoba. Yeah, there was. I mean, first of all, Premier David Eby was very quickly to come out and say, relief and celebration. Uh, He won't be alone at first minister's meetings anymore. There'll be another new Democrat at the table. So there was, uh, yeah, understandable about that. Uh, David Eby, uh, Webb Canoe will now be two NDP premiers uh, committed on on progressive issues and not alone in Western Canada, where we're now down to an even balance, two new Democrats and two conservatives in the four Western provinces. Okay, so that must have been, well, there's somebody then that David Eby can have some kind of a relationship with. Yeah, there is. I, I'm compelled to recall, uh, well, it'll certainly be better than the last time we had two NDP premiers at the table from Western Canada, because remember the relationship between NDP Premier, NDP Premier John Horgan of BC and NDP Premier Rachel Notley of Alberta. Uh, Horgan was using, quote, every tool in the toolbox to fight expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which Notley very much wanted expanded. Uh, She at one point threatened to boycott 
BC wines, banned them from Alberta liquor stores. Horgan tried to smooth the relationship. Uh, He and Notley had both worked for the NDP government as staffers in BC in the 1990s. So Horgan used to refer to her as my friend. (laughs) At one point, Notley's communications director told the Alberta news media that she wished Horgan would stop referring to Notley as his friend. She was not his friend. And I think that is the first time in Canadian history that one premier has unfriended another. (laughs) Publicly. So it'll be better than that relationship. Um, The canoe win, of course, is also significant because he'd be the first Indigenous person to lead a province. There have been Indigenous premiers in the territories. This is the first time a province has one. And it is inspirational. Uh, Canoe's story, whatever else you think of uh, his platform, is certainly inspirational. I see that as a, he's 41. Simi, as a young man, he um, was... Um, he had some trouble. Well, he was, he was arrested. Yeah. Right? Uh, and, you know, the Conservatives tried to make an issue of that during the campaign. But he turned that into a very inspirational moment. On election night, he, as a young man, he insulted, assaulted a taxi driver and refused a breath test. He addressed Indigenous youth. He said, I had a second chance, and look at how it's worked out. You can turn things around, too. And as a premier, um, and a young one, too, uh, I think he's a very inspirational story, and, and leaders right across the political spectrum have acknowledged that. I think so, too. Yeah, it's been more than one person emailed me yesterday to say that I should check out his book. Uh, Yeah, I think a lot of people have already they know all about him, but it's going to be fascinating watching this next few years in Manitoba. And one thing the New Democrats out here may wish to note is that it looks uh, from the coverage and I'm looking at this from a distance that one of the issues that really worked for Canoe and the NDP was to highlight long health care waiting lists declining access to doctors, uh, ERs that were overcrowded. Uh, That issue worked for the NDP as an opposition party there. Um, Perhaps the BC New Democrats might want to worry a little more about how that issue may play to them next year here in BC. We're back with Vaughn Palmer now from the Vancouver Sun. Vaughn, another interesting day in the legislature. Like Clearly there is an agenda here on the part of the BC Conservatives. Yes, they provided the House with a cover-your-ears moment yesterday. So Bruce Banman, the newest Conservative, MLA for Abbotsford South, gets up in question period, continues the culture wars. He reads out in the House a passage from a book that he says is available in school libraries, including, what, down to grade 6, 11-year-olds in BC, and he proceeds to read the passage out. It's pretty shocking. Um, in one sense. Speaker asked him to withdraw. He does withdraw, but then he turns that around and he says, Mr. Speaker, you've ruled this language is not fit for the legislature, but there it is in a book available in the schools. I'm not going to repeat the words, Simi, but I can tell the listener, if they don't want to go and listen to the Hansard website, There was nothing in the passage that you can't find on the internet with one click and that your children can't find on the internet or TikTok or Facebook or wherever. Um, But it, yes, continues the, as I said, the premier has accused the conservatives of bringing the cultural wars to BC. 
Um, I think you could say that's fair. Um, the book, by the way, is Eleanor and Park. I've not heard of it, but I gather it's quite popular as a young adult book. It is, yeah. It's. Um, I looked it up on it's Amazon. Rainbow, it's uh, Rainbow Rowell. Yeah. Rainbow Rowell's a yeah. very popular young adult yeah. author. Yeah, and, and the education ministry pushed back a little bit and said um, most of the schools in the province where that book is available is in uh, our high schools. Um, again... Sammy, um, yeah, we can be shocked at what's circulating out there, but um, you know, young adult fiction is trying very, very hard constructively to reach out to young people and just to get them reading and thinking. And from what I've seen, uh, as I said, what I can research it this morning, this sounds like this book is a very constructive contributor to young attitudes about love and support for each other and survival. And I don't think it's a destructive influence on young people. I don't think the conservatives made that case at all. They just, uh, you call it. They're just going for the headline. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but you make a great point though, Vaughn, like these are the same people who are so worried about this. Do they monitor every single thing that their child looks at on the internet where there is far more destructive things available to them? Yeah. I mean, these are course ugly times. Uh, you know, you, you should see what comes in in, ML, in emails to our MLAs, the kind of threats they get. Um, and I, again, you know, I, I think we can lament the state of the modern world, but if you're looking at what's out there, you really need to begin, as, as teachers have to do all the time, Simi, you really need to discriminate between the stuff that is actually destructive and badly motivated and the stuff that is trying hard to uh, reach out to children, get them interested in reading books, get them interested in thinking, and, and to some degree, Simi, providing them support in a very scary alienating world. Yeah, that is very true. So it's unfortunate, though, that this is like two days in a row. This is the discussion that has come up in the B.C. legislature. Well, I think the conservatives know exactly what yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. The premier identified it quite well. He said that, you know, you are choosing to import the cultural wars into uh, B.C. and into B.C. politics. Your dividing the province and deliberately picking on small, isolated, fearful groups. And you're doing it to gain public support, attention. Okay, I'm giving them attention. I grant that. Public support, intention, raise money. It will work to some degree. We can expect that this will get votes heading into the next election. I think it's interesting that an NDP premier, David Eby, whose party stands to benefit the most from the conservatives splitting the vote on the center-right, that Eby nevertheless has chosen to deplore what they're doing and say they should be ashamed of themselves. That is not necessarily in David Eby's political interest, but I think it's an example of a premier providing needed leadership in BC. That is interesting. Okay, so obviously they'll have more to talk about on that. Uh, but you also wanted to talk about uh, the story we discussed with John Strait this morning about the official provincial fossil. And you've got thoughts on that, Devon? 
Well, yes, uh, we're going to get an official provincial fossil. Uh, Tourism Minister Lana Popham introduced the legislation yesterday. It'll be uh, the Elasmosaur, which has been found uh, up in the northern Vancouver Island. But Simi, um, I've been covering BC politics for a long time, and I have to say I'm personally disappointed oh, why that, is that the official BC fossil isn't a Socrat. <laughs> Maybe they couldn't find one. Maybe that was the problem. <laughs> hey, the last, okay, two footnotes, the last Socrat uh, uh, retired from the BC legislature at the end of the 1990s. He was also the last elected Socrat in the world, I think, the last social creditor to hold office anywhere in the world, um, uh, Cliff Serwa. And I notice in the annual report of Elections BC, the chief electoral officer yesterday, released yesterday, officially deregistered the social Ooh. credit party in BC. It has, they haven't, they haven't won seats for a long time. They've run candidates off and on, but voluntarily social credit agreed to disappear itself from the BC electoral map, according to the chief electoral officer's report tabled yesterday. Okay, so it, it's gone. It is done. So you're saying that there is not in the entire province a single card-carrying member of the SoCreds left. Well, there may be card-carrying members because the Social Credit Party used to issue lifetime memberships. Uh, but it is not an official party anymore. Um, in provincial elections, you would always hope, Simi, that the election bus with reporters would drive through East Vancouver because the person who was the last financial agent for the Social Credit Party used to have a giant vote social credit sign on her front lawn. And a bunch of us thought it should have been declared a heritage site. In BC, because Socrates uh, governed this province very successfully for a long time, and they were sort of absorbed into what became the BC Liberals and what is now BC United. But still, uh, there they go. Uh, They've gone. Uh, New Zealand used to have them. They're long gone. Alberta, I don't think they're around there anymore. So it's a heritage. It's done. That there, that should put that in the museum. I'd go look at that exhibit for sure. (laughs) Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. My grandmother had an island, nothing to boast of. We could walk around it in an hour, but still it was, it was a paradise for us. One summer, we went for a visit and discovered the place had been infested with rats. They'd come on a fishing boat and gorged themselves on coconut. So how do you get rats off an island? My grandmother showed me. I personally feel like that is the most well-known monologue on rats in any Hollywood movie ever. It's Javier Bardem, of course, one of the great villains in a James Bond movie from the movie Skyfall. I'm not going to go into the detail of how his grandmother got rid of the rats, but that's really quite something. And we're talking about rats this morning because, you know, there are a lot of rat problems out there. Maybe you've not got a problem, but a situation. I did have it this summer in my yard where I lost an awful lot of garden plants, an entire crop of beets, actually, to a rat somewhere in the yard. I think I eventually scared it off, though. Vancouver does have a rat problem. We are not alone. In New York City right now, they're really waging war on the rat. And there's a great article about it in the latest issue of Popular Mechanics that poses the question, have the rats won? Now, Eleanor Cummins is the author of that article and a science journalist and adjunct professor at New York University and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, thank you for having me. This is my favorite topic. <laughs> That's kind of weird, Eleanor, that, this is, <laughs> that rats are your favorite topic. <laughs> I'll own it. They're amazing creatures. Why? How? What do you mean? I think that if you want to wage war on rats, what I'm learning is you have to really learn to respect them. Um, when it comes to the math and the science of how rats uh, have infiltrated cities across the world, there's a lot to be impressed by. Um, rats can breed in a single year as many as seven litters with up to 12 pups. That means that a single rat in her lifespan can have 15,000 descendants. So the numbers are just really against us humans fighting back. They're pretty clever. They're um, amazing in terms of their relationships with each other. They can actually be really kind and thoughtful. They have a lot of fun together. I mean, <laughs> everything I learn about them makes me like them more. Uh, that said, there's a lot of problems that they pose. Yeah, let's talk about the problems. And did the pandemic make this worse? Did you find in cities across North America? So what I have heard from talking with experts in um, sort of uh, rodent management is that the pandemic probably didn't make things worse. It just made them more visible. So when people were in lockdown and they weren't on the streets and causing a lot of noise and sort of uh, scaring rats so that they stayed underground, you um, saw them come out. And that kind of freaked people out. But the rats were probably always there. There are a few um, maybe cases here in New York, for example, where rats have been given, um, you know, a lot more sort of leeway. So when we built outdoor dining sheds, for example, those were sort of the perfect like rat habitat and probably did lead to increases um, as long as, uh, you know, those sheds were sort of up on the street. Oh, because we have outdoor patios on our streets here in Vancouver. So you're saying rats like those? So the thing about them is that they need only about the size of a quarter to enter into a space. So if there's like a small gap between the ground and um, a shed in a garden, um, a dining um, shed on the street, that is like the perfect place for them. They'll just sort of um, kind of squeeze their way in there and then they can set up, uh, you know, a pretty active burrow. What rats really need um, is a little bit of water and a little bit of food. Um, we're talking only an ounce of each a day. If they can get more, they'll take it, um, but they don't like to pull it very far, right? You know, when we saw pizza rat sort of go viral, right? He was carrying that piece of pizza with him. His burrow was probably very close by. So uh, a dining shed is like a perfect opportunity for a rat. If they can get in there, they're going to have a steady supply of food from people who are, you know, maybe dropping their dinner. Or in New York, we have a problem where people really just truly will throw um, trash on the sidewalk. Um, and so that is like a rat buffet. Oh my goodness. Okay. So what can be done, if anything, to fight back? So I've learned a lot um, in reporting this story about something called Integrated Pest Management, or IPM. And the idea here is that we have relied a lot on rodenticides in the past to try to manage pet populations, um, pest populations, and not with a lot of success. Um, so the idea is, like, let's bring in a bunch of different other strategies that are maybe less sort of um, toxic. So one of the big things is called burrow harassment. And this might have been um, maybe what you and, and the rat in your garden um, sort of ended up uh, engaging in yes, is a little bit of exactly like burrow what I warfare. Did. I harassed this rat. So that is a scientifically validated strategy for managing rats. Um, and the idea is if you can make a rat feel unsafe, you might not get rid of that individual rat very quickly, but you can suppress their breeding. And that means that you won't have, um, you know, a booming rat population where there was just one. And burrow harassment looks like a bunch of different things. I think the most simple strategy is you really can just pour like sand or soil into um, that burrow uh, when you identify the entry and exit 
exit holes. And that is just a way of saying to the rat, like other people are making claims on this land. You know, we, you're not alone and we don't really want you here. Um, but burrow harassment can go all the way to like having trained ratting dogs um, that can get inside the burrow, flush a rat out, um, you know, you name it. Other strategies include, um, you know, garbage or compost containerization. Um, concrete platforms that sort of um, create an even surface for sheds, like I said, so that rats can't burrow underneath. Um, screening um, the, the sort of lower portion of a fence um, because those sort of boundaries between buildings are sort of their favorite place. And probably the most useful for a gardener is actually just trimming back plants at their bases because what rats really love is to feel that sort of shade and coverage of a low-lying bush that tells them they're safe, that they should start burrowing. And if you can sort of reduce that ground coverage, um, you can make them feel like maybe this isn't the best place for me. I eventually found that the chili powder worked really well. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, there are a lot of homegrown strategies as well. Okay. So is this, is this something that we have to think of? Do we have to rethink how we wage war on rats? I definitely think so. Your neighbors in Alberta, right, haven't had a breeding pair of rats in 70 years. Okay, that's, and that's what they because, say. Like, that's what they think. Yes, they say, they say. And that's like, you know, even if it's um, a small population, that's because like the government takes this on, right, and does it in a really coordinated way. I think in New York, what we would really need to solve our problem is garbage containerization. Um, since uh, the 1970s, New Yorkers have dropped you know, plastic bags of garbage on the street overnight. Um, and that has been our strategy for garbage pickup. That is a perfect scenario for yeah. rat breeding. Um, if we were to bring back, uh, you know, Oscar the Grouch style bins or, or some other sort of sealed container for our garbage, um, we would probably just in that single action, um, dramatically dent our rat population. See, we have those containers. We have like garbage containers to for for them to come and pick up, but we still have a rat problem. I feel like rats will just find a way, uh, Eleanor. They're that's crafty. what they do. I'm with you. I think that um, the goal, as, as I heard it articulated here in New York, at least, is that we just get it down to a manageable population. So it's probably totally true that we will never be able to get rid of them. Um, but how do we suppress them and then seek them out in a kind of um, proactive way? Are you saying so, like uh, make friends thing, with the rats, learn to live with the rats? Is that what we have to do? <laughs> that's, that's what Paris is saying. They're saying like, maybe we should look into just cohabitation, as they put it. Um, I think that uh, the idea of, of having a, a man manageable population that you can sort of track, um, you know, using sensors um, and sort of curtail that way is like the optimal strategy here. I think it is sort of a pipe dream to say that we will be rat free. Well, I love your fascination with rats, even if I don't love rats themselves. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's Eleanor Cummins. Eleanor's a science journalist and adjunct professor at New York University, but you must read her article in Popular Mechanics this month. It's called, it says, Have the Rats Won? It really got my attention. And that is the question. Do we need to find a new way to deal with the rat population? What has worked for you. I had a bunch of vegetables that this one particular rat was really feasting on this summer. And so I did turn to like not chili powder, but um, like dried chili flakes and just liberally sprinkling it around my vegetables. And you know what? It eventually worked. That rat stopped coming around and I did manage to save not the beets, but the beans. I did manage to save the beans. What has worked in your garden? Tell me, how have you dealt with rats? Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Let's talk about our criminal justice system. We have a lot of issues with it these days. There are concerns that it's not working as it should to protect Canadians. Well, our next guest has some thoughts on that. Now, he spent his life as a law professor, a former advisor to the Harper government, a law clerk even at the Supreme Court of Canada. But what Benjamin Perrin also has is he's changed his thoughts on the criminal justice system, actually, all because of a letter that he received. He's got a new book out called Indictment, the Criminal Justice System on Trial. And Benjamin Perrin joins us now. He's also a professor at uh, the Allard School of Law up at UBC. Thanks so much for being here this morning. Thanks for having me. Now tell me about this letter that you received. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of folks can't afford lawyers, right, in this province. And so as a law professor, I often get people asking for help. And this letter was a different. It was an eight-page handwritten letter. The person didn't ask for help at all. They just wanted to share their story. It was an Indigenous man being incarcerated here in BC. And it was an absolutely haunting, haunting letter. And one of the lines that really stood out for me is he said, if you want to turn a man into an animal, put him in a cage without the resources to build himself back up. And that's what was the project on, on thinking about different ways we could do justice and have safer communities. So do you think the system as it is right now is working? I don't think anyone does. Um, when I talk to uh, interview survivors of crime, when I talk to uh, police officers, when I talk to uh, Indigenous leaders, when I talk to people who've been incarcerated, no one thinks the system is working. And what I, we see that in the stats. We see both rising crime rates. We see increasing incidents of police, for example, um, uh, killing people in mental health distress. Those rates are rising. Um, we also have incidents of victims not going to the system, completely given up. You know, it, it's shocking. Only a third of criminal incidents even get reported to police. So most victims have given up wholesale on the system entirely. Now, Benjamin, you've been on the inside of the system, right? So yeah. what what did you see on the inside? Does does the inside of the system think it's broken? I think that, uh, you know, you'll need to read things like some pre- Supreme Court of Canada decisions, and they, they'll tell you that they think it's it's not working. Um, look at something like the disproportionate rates of Indigenous incarceration. You know, the Supreme Court called that a crisis uh, decades ago, and the numbers have only gotten worse. We're at the point now where 32% of people in federal prisons are Indigenous. And we look at female incarcerated people federally, 50%. Uh, you go to some provinces, it's 70 to 80%. So this is a runaway freight train. It is not working. And we need a, a fundamentally different approach. Um, you know, right now, there's basically two things I see on offer. One is to go back to the old tough on crime stuff, more police, harsher prison sentences, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It, it doesn't work. I mean, if it did, like, look at the United States, right? It would be the safest uh, country in the world. It's not. They have the highest rates of incarceration. They, you know, talk to Republican governors who tried this. They went all in on that, okay? It, you know, nearly broke the bank, and they, they've retreated from that entirely. The research shows that more police does not reduce crime. I'll say again, more police does not reduce crime. Why? Police are reactive. They, they show up after things have already happened. Um, it's like saying, like, let's hire some more, you know, coroners to deal with the toxic drug crisis, right? That you're way too late in the process. So we need to fundamentally rethink how we deal with this. The other thing is locking people up. Look, most people, the vast majority of people who, who do get imprisoned are eventually let out in our communities. And the, what I heard time and again from people in the system, and the research backs it up, is people leave prisons and jails worse off. They're more traumatized. They're more connected with crime. They have less opportunities. And that cycle that, of, of trauma and violence right. 
continues. And we all we all pay the price for that. Now, Benjamin, for us here, you know, when you read the stories, you see it in the news, people worry about repeat offenders, right? So someone who's getting out, doing it again, getting out and doing it again. So how do we yeah. fix that problem? Exactly. And that's so the system is giving us that outcome. And I actually don't think the system is broken. I think the system is perfectly designed results that it's getting. And so the reason we see people cycling in and out and repeated offending is that continuing to use that sort of tool of harsh incarceration contributes to that directly. It actually increases reoffending. We've known that since 1958. This isn't new. And there's over 100 studies finding it. So I propose a, a different approach in, in terms of how we deal with things. And I call it a new transformative justice approach. The idea is instead of focusing on punishing people, let's focus on transforming the trauma in our society. And there's a whole bunch of different ways to do that. I mean, everything from doing the early childhood intervention to prevent kids from being abused. Um, I found this shocking. Someone who experiences moderate levels of childhood abuse is 50% more likely to harm others later in life. Uh, they're also, by the way, eight times more likely to be uh, victimize themselves later. So if a, if a child is abused, um, they're more likely to both harm others later in life and be a victim. So there's there's some longer term things we need to do, but there's also some immediate things. So I mentioned more police is not the answer. Um, I'm calling for you know 24 seven non police crisis response teams. When we see those in other jurisdictions, they take 15 to 20 percent of calls, so they're able to intervene when it's a mental health issue, right? Police officers are not equipped to deal with that. That's when we see tragic cases like Miles Gray who was killed by the Vancouver Police Department. And it was ruled a homicide. And we're doing an event next month with his family to talk about why that happened and why it continues to happen across the country. So when you call 911, your options right now are, you know, police, fire, or paramedic. There's no option of a crisis worker. And and families who who have, for example, elderly parents with dementia have called the police, uh, have called 911, rather, asking for medical help. And instead, the police show up. And within, you know, hours or minutes even, their family member is dead. This is not a one-time thing. It's actually part of the system. So we need new systems to keep us all safer. And um, the other big idea I would just put out there as well, and the province can do this, we don't need to wait for the federal government, is some people need to be separated from our society to keep us safer, right? They're a risk. They do need to. Right. What I want to see happen, though, is I want them coming out better, not worse, right? So Norway had a similar system to what we we have. They were completely overhauled after a few prison riots and some guards were killed. And they asked the question, what kind of neighbor do you want? So instead of a harsh, you know, inside, right. they transformed it. It's about healing. You get the substance treatment, the counseling, you get a job, you come out. And sure enough, you know what happened? Their recidivism, their reoffend rates yeah. went from 70% down to 20%. So it's possible. Okay. Well, Benjamin, this is a great conversation. I hope we can have you back and talk more about it because I am fascinated by it. But thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Benjamin Perrin is a professor at the Allard School of Law at UBC, former advisor to the Harper government in-house counsel for the prime minister and author of Indictment, the criminal justice system on trial. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's been about oh, six months since the name Atira was in the headlines, and it was in the headlines a lot. It's one of the largest nonprofit housing providers. The Atira Women's Resources Society has gone through some changes since that time. Ever since, the city, the province had some problems with, with their model, suspended funding to Atira because of a conflict of interest between its former CEO and the former head of BC Housing, who are married to each other. I know, it seems obvious in retrospect, doesn't it? So the question has been, could Atira survive as a result of all that? 
Well, the city of Vancouver voted unanimously this week to approve almost a million dollars in grants back to Atira. Leads to the question, what has changed here? Joining us now is Catherine Room, the interim CEO of the Atira Women's Resource Society. Catherine, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. What have the last six months been like at Atira? Well, I have been there since July the 4th. So I would say what I have experienced is the thought leadership, the support services for the most marginalized people in the downtown east side, that has never wavered. So really the frontline employees are amazing in how they support people who really need the most uh, compassionate support. Right, but there have clearly been, you, you would have come into that building or that office when a lot of employees must be feeling pretty dispirited about what the previous few months had been like. Yeah, sure. I mean, I was brought in to stabilize the financial health and support operational excellence, and that's because of my business background. I think what what we see is that the board really had to pull on these values of transparency and partnership. The employees themselves, they have just kept doing their amazing work. Uh, and now, you know, we said, well, we are regaining trust, and I think we've done that. I think our partners in the community now see the same thing as our employees. How? Uh, just this really great work on the ground. How do you do that? How do you rebuild trust? Because it was pretty broken. Yeah, sure, exactly. So, you know, part of that is starting to work with our partners like the Vancouver Police and Vancouver Fire, because they also want to control risk around the facilities that we operate. And that has really led to Atira saying, okay, if those partners are helping us particularly apply data and data analytics on the risk, then we're going to be in a better place to, to run and, and have really supportive, safe housing. Um, our other partners include, of course, our funder, BC Housing. So I meet with the CEO every two weeks. And then, as you mentioned at the top, uh, City of Vancouver is a very important partner to us. And I think with the innovative programs that they supported yesterday, that's really a a great show of support for Atira. What are those programs? Well, one in particular is a a women-led Indigenous Women's Wellness Centre. And women from Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh and Musqueam have created um, an idea for a space simply for women's wellness. Atira is only the landlord. So what we're doing is providing the tenant improvements to make the space work. But this is just the the first of its kind. And we know that Indigenous women are really overrepresented and experience violence and poor health outcomes far more so than the rest of the population. So the innovation around that, we're, we're just really, really delighted to be able to support. Catherine, has the safety improved in the buildings that are run by Atira? Because I know that's been a huge issue. Well, my background is health and safety and technical safety, so I have to say it's it's really, really challenging to see a hundred year old building that really hasn't has been lived in continuously since uh, since it was put up, and we have uh, tenants, maybe a hundred and ten tenants in those buildings, and a few employees managing it, and that's the level that we're funded at. And so, what has happened in the last couple of years? We have of course, this opioid crisis, so deteriorating health outcomes, but then a violence increase in the downtown east side with gangs. And so all of that means that there's great pressure on health and safety and security. And I'm working with the government to talk about, well, how do we change that? How do we increase 
the funding, particularly around safety and security. And, you know, that's good for uh, tourists. It's good for people who work in the downtown east side, and it's certainly good for tenants. So that's something that uh, in the next couple of months I'm going to be particularly focused on. Okay, so you're saying that that's still a work in progress then? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and critical. We we actually ended an operating contract with one of the SROs called the Patricia because we can't see how we can maintain that safely. And so that was is being turned back to government to find another operator. And, you know, when when social service entities like ourselves say, okay, that's the line, that sends an important message about the standard of uh, support particularly for employees. You know, they have to have the oxygen mask on first before they can turn to help someone else. And we're partnering with the BCGU uh, in that and aligning on health and safety and security. All right. So then what is, what's missing? What still needs to be done here besides that? Because some of your employees, as you talked about there, they say there's still work to be done, like making sure all the employees get things like overdose prevention training. Are there still gaps? For sure, the training, the health and safety assessments, all of those pieces, that is an ongoing work in progress. And I completely understand where employees are coming from. And that's our job is to make sure employees can turn around and do the amazing work that they do every day. So we have this program of change. It's designed to build trust, not just with the public, with what ATERA is doing, but also with our employees. And, you know, that is going to be work that has to continue. It's going to require negotiation with our funders in order to deliver that kind of service. Long term, what is needed in the downtown east side and other big cities around the province for complex care for the most marginalized, we need purpose-built housing. We need wraparound supports in housing that is purposely built for folks who are coming with full-blown addictions or mental health or head trauma all of the things that, you know, we know exist, but when you house people in 100-year-old hotels called SROs, we are not giving them hope. And, and that's the new mantra for Atira is housing to hope. Okay, would you say that Atira is getting more selective then about the type of work or buildings that you choose? You said there's some that you're, you're going to give back because you say we can't, we can't hold this to the standard that we want to hold it to. So rather than take on too much, you're going to say we're, we're going to draw the line here. Yeah, exactly. During COVID, ATIRA grew exponentially. And what it needed was to have scaffolding underneath it to support the business processes, deliver really great housing for these folks. And so when you see us and other social service agencies say, wait a minute, it's not just housing for housing's sake. And the housing first strategy, that's you know what we've done in the last decade. We need to build housing, which is housing to hope which gives people that light at the end of the tunnel that they actually can move towards a better life, who they're meant to be as people. And so it is going to take entities like ourselves to say, this is, this is what we can deliver safely and well and for the people who really need us there. And that, that's a form of compassion that I think is really important that all of the agencies draw a line and say, it's to this standard or we can't do it. Catherine, thank you for the update this morning. Thank you, Simi. That's Catherine Room, who's the interim CEO of the Atira Women's Resource Society. Lots of changes there in the last six months since they were really in the headlines with the province crackdown and said that this was unacceptable, forced the CEO out. 
Catherine is the new interim CEO there since July and uh, working to turn things around. And that is an interesting one. We'll see. Is it going to be the same old, same old, or are they going to be able to do it? We'll keep an eye on that. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, I need to get something explained to me this morning because City of Vancouver uh, last night at a council meeting talking about proposing an increase in rental rates for moderate income housing to support affordable home construction. So we want to find out more about this whole program and how this is going to work. So joining us now is Sarah Kirby-Young, ABC Vancouver City Councilor, to talk more about this. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Okay, can you explain this to me? How how does raising affordable housing prices help us build more affordable housing? Yeah, and it's a good question. And let me let me break it down because it's not about raising the prices per se. It's about getting the units built. So the report that council considered was on below market rental. Um, and if you look at what we need to build in the city of Vancouver moving forward on our housing strategy, we need 72% of the units, about three-quarters of the units we build need to be rental units. And what we saw happening is that we had a moderate income rental housing pilot program um, that required developers to come in and 20% of the floor space or 20% of the units had to be below market or affordable units compared to the rest of the building. We had about 60 applications and only 16 were proceeding. And what came back in the analysis uh, from staff was that they weren't proceeding because of the economics, because what uh, was required is that 20% below market remained even as the units turned over. Um, And so the change that's proposed to try to get units built because the projects were just not moving ahead um, is that somebody? Uh, the units are always going to be uh, more affordable. They're always going to be 20% below the prevailing market rate, but they can be changed when somebody moves out to bring them up to 20% of whatever the current market rates are. So they're still deeply discounted um, homes. If you look at uh, a comparison of rates, you would uh, see probably a pretty minimal increase around $100 or $200 a unit. Um, I know that every dollar counts for renters, but that's the difference between getting these units built or not getting them built at all. But is, I guess what I'm wondering is, is that affordable rate that we're setting, if if it's 20% below market price and market price is already outrageous, is 20% of a discount even enough? Well, it doesn't, I mean, there's a lot of pieces of the housing continuum. So we need more nonprofit housing. Uh, You know, we're looking at the opportunity to deliver potentially more co-ops. There's the False Creek Southlands and the opportunity to densify those. So there's a number of different pieces in the housing mix, and affordability is really critically important. Um, But we need to get the units built, period, and they will be 20% below. So it is a significant savings because um, the comparison of 20% is not just on what the rent for a new building would be. It's on the average of citywide rents, and that includes um, older buildings, newer buildings. So it will actually be a deeper discount than the 20% when you look at the average. Pretty significant. So one comparison we had is, um, when this analysis was done, if you had a unit renting, for example, uh, at uh, $2,800 under this program, it would be renting at uh, about 1800 It's still a significant savings, um, and but this will allow us to actually get them built. People can't live in a unit that isn't built, and they can't get that 20% off again if it's not built. Are, are these proposals coming to the city of Vancouver? Like, Are you guys getting more proposals for projects like this? Well, as I said, we had with this pilot program um, that was designed to bring in more rental units and the below market affordable ones, we had about 60 applications and only 16 
thought that the finances made sense to move forward. So what uh, staff have identified is that they think that this change will um, enable a lot of those projects to move forward and could result in another 15,000 total uh, rental units and um, below market combined. Okay, but I mean, clearly something needs to happen to stir more of these things, right? Like, do you think that recent federal government announcement about removing the GST on rental projects, do you think that will spur things? Uh, That's a really positive one. Uh, That's an incredibly um, positive step forward and something they've been advocating for. I also hear um, that looking at taxes on sort of input costs along the chain, whether it's on, you know, with respect to materials, labor, et cetera, um, are other pieces that we can do. City of Vancouver waives um, sort of community amenity contributions, for example, on rental projects. That's been really successful um, in getting them built. But I, I think we're in a situation where you're going to see us continue to tweak and refine policies um, in response to the challenging economic conditions because we need to get that housing across the line. Okay, so obviously the demand is there for people. Is this like a revisiting, do you think, Councillor Kirby Young? Are you looking back at things that the City of Vancouver, like you've tried in the last 10 years that maybe you don't think are working as well anymore? Yeah, absolutely, because the conditions have changed um, and people's needs have changed. Uh, We're seeing now that it it used to be that renters 10 years ago were in the minority and now they're 57% of all households in the city of Vancouver. So we obviously needed to shift our strategy and make sure that that was the type of housing that we were building and we did. Um, and we got the rental built. Now we're finding that it's tougher to get the more affordable units. So we're adapting again and saying, okay, how do we get more of those built? So it, it needs to be constant in terms of being responsive and flexing. What do developers tell you? What do they need to get some of these projects done? Well, this is what we heard, um, is that the challenge was that uh, over time, uh, if those rents could not um, be indexed so that they were 20% below what the current market rents were, that they couldn't proceed with the projects and they wouldn't build. The projects were literally cancelled or on hold. Okay, so you need to get things moving. That's exactly what this report was about, yeah. Okay, so then what, what else do you think needs to be done here? What would you like to see to encourage more of this? Well, I, I think one of the biggest challenges with to get deep affordability, it it's uh, operating subsidies for nonprofits. They are the ones that can operate housing the most affordably, but it typically requires government subsidies to do that. And so if you think back in the 60s, 70s, there was a lot of investment in co-op models. I think now there's a lot of interesting opportunities around things like affordable home ownership um, to help people that do want to buy uh, get a ladder in. Um, and uh, so some innovative uh, opportunities there. And, uh, and again, I think too, uh, which is doing more things like waiving the GST federally um, and having that support from other levels of government. I noticed that they, the, we talked to Mike Klassen about this yesterday and his that motion that he was bringing forward with Lisa Dominato about the childcare spaces and the prefabricated housing. Uh, that got passed last night, but are you looking for federal help on that as well? Uh, childcare uh, always has uh, assistance for operating subsidies unless it's run privately. Uh, but if you are, it's the same as housing, if you want to deliver that affordably, it does need the operating subsidies. The prefabricated timber construction is really intriguing in terms of the ability to build it. Um, but then you have to run it too, right? Um, and that's expensive to run. So uh, you do need some of those supports and subsidies for folks that have lower incomes um, so that they can afford a place to live and they can afford uh, space childcare for their kids so they can go to work. Right. Lots more to come. All right. Thank you so much for your time. No worries. Have a great day. That's Sarah Kirby Young, ABC Vancouver City Councillor, talking about the different ways the 
that city council and the city of Vancouver is looking to get more affordable housing into the mix. There's a lot of co- uh, talk this, this, these days as well about development cost charges and what are the ways to incentivize this and make it happen faster to get developers to build more affordable rental housing, just more rental housing. Now, if you have suggestions, would love to hear them. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We all have challenges and obstacles that we have to overcome at some point in our lives, right? But geez, our next guest has really had to go above and beyond on that front. Kehlani Rose is an actor and dancer. You may have seen them in the popular comedy series Shorzy. Hilarious, by the way. Uh, She plays Miguan. But that pales kind of in comparison to what she's been going through behind the scenes, including being shot in the chest gunshot wound, no less, and having to recover from that and return to the work that she has been doing in in Shorzy as well as co-producing an experimental short film titled Breathe. It's a lot, and we wanted to find out how they've been processing all of this. So Kehlani Rose joins us now to talk about that. Thank you for being here. Oh, mahalo for having me. It's so nice to be here. Well, first off, let's talk about your work on Shorzy. That is coming back. I know it's going to be back on the air. What's that like? It is a joyful ride. (laughs) It's just, uh, it's full of fun. It's full of fight. It's a little bit dirty. It's a little bit grungy. Um, You know, you're, you're, heart is so warm because you're fighting for the underdog, which I feel like so many of us can relate to. That is so true. The second season I know just premiered on September 29th. It's absolutely hilarious. Uh, But you, over the last year and a half, have had a lot more to deal with. You were being dropped off at your apartment in Los Angeles. And what happened? Uh, Well, I was gifted a a fresh start. I was gifted a rebirth. I was gifted um, a second chance. And that's how I that's how I like to think about it, at least. <laughs> right, because that's, that's a gunshot wound to your chest. Do you remember anything about that? Um, there's a big piece that I don't remember at all. Uh, but the parts that I do remember um, actually felt so incredibly peaceful, like. I I don't know how to explain it in words to this day, but um, when I went unconscious, there was this really overwhelming sense of deep purpose and deep belonging and deep, um, yeah. I I really that's all that's all I know how to explain it as right now. I'm still working on working through all that. Well, but, yeah, you're processing um, that. Yeah, you were recovering. Uh, you went back to your hometown of Prince George where you spent some time recovering. And what was that process like? It's been such a gift. It's been so grounding. I'm spending a lot of time with family that I've never met before. My cousins and my aunties out in the community. We like to call it the community instead of the reservation. And um, just getting to know my roots in a deeper way and all the ways that I can contribute to my home community and the healing that we're all going through as um, a nation and as a nation within a nation um, while we're all working through reconciliation. Is it easier when you talk about it, Leilani? Like when you talk about the things that you have been through and, and the learning process? 
It definitely heals every time I talk about it. You know, I think that there's something really special about the oral tradition, um, and I'm learning that right now through all my connections with my roots, but also when I talk about the experience, it, um, it brings energy forward that, that is healing. And so, yeah, thanks for asking. <laughs> right, because you've talked about, you know, not, you want to make sure you take advantage of this kind of second chance in life, but what does that mean? What do you want to change? I feel like there's been a big part of history where Indigenous voices, um, mixed POC voices, or femme voices haven't been um, amplified or elevated or um, respected. And a lot of the storytelling that I am passionate about is to bring our stories in a sovereign way to the rest of the world so that we can humanize our experience and move away from harmful stereotypes. Do you have a message when you talk to people? Is there something that you want to impart to them about like lessons that you've learned? You feel like, Hey, listen, you got to take advantage of every day. I mean, I think that one of the biggest ones has just been like being breathing. It's enough. Like we're, all of us, each of us is divinely meant to be here. That was the feeling that I got in those moments. And I, it's unquestionable. Like we're each, all of us are miracles. And I feel that to my core when I think about this bonus round that I get to be in right now. And I think that's why I'm so excited and so grateful and so inspired to bring all of these works of art, all of these collaborations and all of these creations um, to the world, to my community, to my family, just to out, just to release them. That's a cool way to look at it. You called it a bonus round. You feel like this is all bonus time for you now? Bonus time, baby. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> like overtime, to use a, a Shorzy example. You're, you're in overtime, essentially. Exactly. And we're still winning. We're still fighting for that win. So. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. That's Kehlani Rose. Uh, Kehlani is an award-winning filmmaker, actress, dancer. Uh, but you would know her probably best from her work on this on the TV comedy series Shorzy. Hilarious. Uh, where she plays Migwan. And they just kicked off their second season too. But she's also... Uh, recovering still a gunshot wound to the chest in Los Angeles a year and a half ago has left her with a real uphill struggle. As you can tell, she is really trying hard to overcome.